welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. morning. Well, those of us who are parents, and that's most of us who are adults here, love looking at and observing our children, don't we? Even those of us who are not parents, like Sharon and myself, love observing the children of family, friends, and relatives. And one of the things that endlessly fascinates probably most of us in this room, is who our children or the children we know and love turn out to look like. (laughs) Sharon and I were doing that just last week as we looked at the children of our nephew Brian and his wife Krisha. The children are now middle school age. And seeing this great family portrait that they posted on Facebook a few days ago, I remarked to Sharon, look at their faces. Sophie looks like her mother in her hair, but her father in her face. Chase looks like his father in his hair, but his mother in his face. It's not, hopefully, a matter of pride when we make these observations, but rather a sense of wonder at God's creativity in forming human beings who are created in his image. Well, I would like to suggest that family resemblance matters in the Christian life, our family resemblance to Jesus. And I think that C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, gives us something to ponder along these lines. He says, quote, the church exists for nothing else than to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, Missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, that whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. Now let's take a moment and think about that idea slowly and carefully. It is doubtful whether the universe was created for any other purpose than to be populated with people who are imperfectly, at least in this life, but nonetheless truly miniature reproductions, reflections of Jesus. In other words, God wants the universe filled with people who share a strong family relationship to Jesus, their brother. The last few weeks at Corpus Christi Anglican, it seems to me that we've been looking at how to grow in this family resemblance amidst our imperfections and challenges. Three weeks ago, Father Ryan talked about the problems that we and all humanity naturally face in our fallenness, our love of autonomy, the shame that results from our sins, and our flight and fear from God. Our response, he said, should be to confess to repent, and to be restored to communion with God. 
Then the following week, Father Morgan stressed the need for us to battle misplaced trust in things other than God and to mistrust our own pride. And last week, Father Morgan encouraged us to redeem the darkness we face in our suffering and our dark nights of the soul by entrusting ourselves to the God who created us and seeking deeper intimacy with Jesus. Well, today, in our scripture reading from Deuteronomy 15, as we continue through the Old Testament these weeks, we're looking at giving in the framework of God's commands to ancient Israel. While it might seem difficult to apply that passage from that context into our lives today, the lectionary helps us today by giving us largely parallel concerns in 2 Corinthians 8. Both passages challenge us to think corporately as well as individually, which can be very difficult in today's individualistic American society. Let's track these concerns primarily in Deuteronomy 15 with some references on going to 2 Corinthians 8. And in Deuteronomy 15, Moses addresses the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. There we find three guidelines to help us reflect a greater family resemblance, resemblance to Jesus as little Christ. Guideline number one, address others' poverty by meeting their needs. We can look at that in verses seven and eight. The problem given here in verse seven is in historical context is poverty in Israel. If among you, one of your brothers, that's using the first edition of the ESV, I noticed that in today's reading it said one of, one of, uh, one of the Israelites, should become poor in any of your towns within your land. That's the problem. Notice that even one case of poverty is a problem to God. If even one such case has powerful reverberating effects for the people of Israel, how much more should it impact the church, the body of Christ, where according to St. Paul, when one of us who make up the family of God hurts, all hurt, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. So that's, this is our problem. Even one poverty, you know, even one case of poverty is an issue. The solution to this is found in the rest of verses 7 through 8. To paraphrase it, do not harden your heart. Do not be stingy. Instead, give enough to meet the need of that individual, quote, whatever it may be, unquote. Now, that's the hard part, isn't it? Whatever it may be can be costly. The solution might be beyond any one of us as individuals. And so the response might of necessity need to be a corporate one and require the whole church's involvement. Paul praised the Macedonian congregations for their response to the needs of poor Christians living in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2-3. through 3. The Macedonian congregations were suffering and financially poor themselves, yet they gave beyond their means for the impoverished Jerusalem Christians. It cost them a great deal to do so, but they were faithful. Just a little contemporary side point. The Macedonian congregations remind me of an interesting trend that plays out across at least America and England, according to several studies conducted over the last decade or two. 
Do you know which societal group gives away the largest percentage of their money to help others between the upper, middle, and lower classes? It's the lower class, with approximately 4% giving of their income, according to a 2019 study in America. Upper class members, of course, give away the most money, but the not the greatest percentage of income. Why is this? Well, from what studies seem to show, the answer seems to be that living with lesser means makes people more empathetic toward others' plights. That's the, that's the best explanation we have for it. So guideline number one, address others' poverty by meeting their needs. Number two, prevent our hearts from being hardened through free, willing, and cheerful giving that does not take into account any benefit that we might receive. We see that in verses 9 through 10. God allowed the Israelites to take impoverished fellow countrymen, fellow Israelites, desperate to gain money to pay off their debts, to be servants. But in the sabbatical year, once every seven years, um, Employers had to either forgive or postpone, scholars are not sure, uh, any remaining debts and free the Israelite servants. In verses 9 through 10, the problem that Moses warns the people of Israel against is hardened hearts that ignore the cries of the poor needing to pay their debts in cases when the sabbatical year was close at hand. So in other words, why should I hire them if I'm going to have to let them go one year from now or two years from now? So this warning essentially says, do not refuse to give due to a lack of desired benefit coming to you. Thinking of it more positively, it says give without regard to any perceived benefit on our, on your part. Um, the solution to the problem of a hardened heart is to give freely, willingly, and cheerfully without any inward grudge. And a good cross-reference to this, although it wasn't in our reading today, is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. The Macedonians were praised by Paul for giving freely and earnestly to the Jerusalem Christians in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul was so amazed by it that he considered it to be a supernatural outpouring of God's grace, as we see in verse 1 of that chapter. Now, jumping back to Deuteronomy. One part of Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, verse, verse 10, might give us pause. Moses told the Israelites to give freely because, quote, for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. Was Moses saying that you should give in order to receive blessings from God? No, as that would contradict what he had already said in verse 9, to give without regard to any perceived benefit on your part. Rather, we should read verse 10 as saying the reverse, that God gives us our daily blessings in life, including the income that we receive from our labor, in order so that we will be enabled to give freely, for, as verse 11 goes on to tell us, the poor are an ever-present reality in a fallen world. It is perhaps with this and other scripture verses in mind that one of our Anglican forefathers, the well-known evangelist John Wesley, 
famously counseled Christians to make what they could financially with the ultimate goal of giving away what they could. So, guideline number one, address others' poverty by meeting their needs. Uh, guideline number two, prevent our hearts from being hardened through free, willing, and cheerful giving that does not take into account any benefit that we might receive. Guideline number three, give generously. And while not in the text, we can say by extension, using Jesus, Jesus as our model. This is verse 11, the concluding passage in our verse, in our, in our reading. Moses states his overarching principle concerning giving in this verse, quote, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We are to give generously as if with outstretched hands. And here our family resemblance comes into play. One of our prayers for mission in our morning prayer service comes to mind. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. There's a similar prayer for mission in our noonday prayer service. Jesus is the model for us of outstretched arms because there are no arms more outstretched to embrace the whole world than his on the cross. Nor are there any outstretched arms other than his that can free us from our sinful tendencies and make us into miniature reflections of himself. The late Rich Mullins in his song, Peace, a communion blessing from St. Joseph's Square, wrote, and his outstretched arms are still strong enough to reach inside these prison bars to set us free. So our giving with outstretched arms is an imitation of Christ. When Paul urged the Corinthian Christians to imitate the Macedonians in their abundant giving to the Jerusalem Christians, he even more fundamentally asked them to imitate Christ, who, quote, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Giving generously to others, then, imitates Jesus' acceptance of poverty for all of humanity's sake. Through our sacrificial giving, while we in one sense become poor, we paradoxically grow in becoming little Christ and so become rich in the things of God. So far, we have been talking about giving essentially in financial terms, but this overarching principle applies to any type of giving that we do of ourselves. We have already seen how in our morning and noonday mission prayers, this generous giving applies to evangelism and witness. And just Friday night, I was reminded of sacrificial giving on a very different type of level. In the winter and spring of 1990, I was a student teacher of high school English under a remarkable teacher named Catherine or Kathy Atkins in Shawsville, Virginia. For anyone who has a fellow Hokie, Shawsville was on US 460 some 16 miles southwest of Virginia Tech, but that 16 miles led you to, into a world apart from the prosperous, technologically advanced campus. Shawsville was essentially an outpost of impoverished Appalachia. Teens there often came from poor rural families, and some of them lived in cars after being kicked out of their homes. 
There was one student, and only one, in Shawsville Middle and High School whose family was wealthy. And as you can imagine, he was very much envied. Anyway, Kathy was tough and no nonsense, yet she was compassionate with, the, with her students. And I heard somehow, perhaps from one of my Virginia Tech's teaching, student teaching administrators, that she would sometimes take in students rejected by their families on a temporary basis. Now, I already knew her as an outstanding teacher who had won many teaching awards by that point in her career. But that left me even more in awe of her. Decades passed after that student teaching experience, and other than one card I wrote, in her, I wrote her in 1992, we lost contact until 2016, when I sent her a friend request on Facebook and a message reminding her of who I was. By then, she was Catherine Kelly, professor of, ed of English education at Radford University. Occasional posts in Facebook on her part showed me that her Roman Catholic faith was still alive and well, and that made me happy, but we never chatted. Then she sent me a friendly hello message last summer because she saw we were online at the same time, and we had a catch-up conversation. In that relatively brief exchange, I related my gratitude for how she took in her students, and she responded, no, I never did that. But I did talk to them and let them know that I thought they were important. We made tentative plans to have lunch together in the indefinite future whenever I got back down to the Virginia Tech area, and I anticipated monitoring an incredible conversation between her and Sharon about their years of education work. About a week later, she messaged me a, Christ, a Christian blessing. Nothing new occurred un, until Friday night when someone else's post on her wall showed up on my feed and revealed to me the sad news that Kathy had passed away a little over a week ago. Now let's stop and think for a second about that clarification she gave me. Even though the story of her taking in students apparently was incorrect, what would it mean for us, for me, for you, to be generous enough in our giving of ourselves to others that the stories of our compassion sometimes exceeded the reality. Kathy was as fallen as any one of us, and yet she was a little Christ. So to make our giving part of the slow process, and it is slow, as we've talked about in our weeks on patience, our, the slow process of our transformation into a little Christ, we should, number one, address others' poverty, whether that poverty is financial or any other type, by meeting their needs. Number two, prevent our hearts from being hardened toward the poor with free, willing, and cheerful giving that does not take into account any benefit that we might receive. And number three, give generously, using as our model Jesus himself. And just maybe... As a Virginia Tech campus ministry leader once said back in my college days, God is like a father who delights in showing pictures of us, his adopted children, to anyone around. If so, then our giving contributes to the family resemblances seen to his only begotten son in those photos. And those resemblances, if we accept C.S. Lewis's theory, are the reason the universe was created. Amen.